This episode is made possible by the producership of Sue Ackridge. More about how you can become part of the show at the end, and also kind of everything in between. This is episode 51 of the History of Podcast. My name's Robert, and today's episode is the history of advertising. I'm super glad you're tuning in. Should I make that a word? Super glad? I think so. To start, I have the egg carton count, and today's egg carton count is 61, so uh, an even 10 above the, uh, the episode number. Pretty happy about that. As always, crazy amount of egg cartons in here. So the next 30 minutes are kind of about advertising. Um, It's always been a common theme in just about every episode of The History Of, and I think it deserves an episode to itself. I'm joined by Mark Tungate, who could not be more qualified on this topic. He's the author of Adland, A Global History of Advertising, as well as other fine reads on advertising and travel, beauty, luxury, marketing to men. And for the history of advertising, as per usual around here, uh, we start at the beginning. So, uh, the history of advertising, um, it, I guess it goes back to the ancient world in Egypt, Greece, and Rome. Uh, but where would you say it begins in the modern world? Yeah. Um, well, in the modern world, it's difficult because there's a kind of blur in a way. Um, like uh, I'm based in France. So One of the earliest newspapers was launched here in the 16th century by a guy whose name is very difficult to pronounce, uh, a guy called Théophraste Renaudot, who um, started out, he was a a doctor actually, but he wanted to to help poorer people. So he set up a kind of booth in the centre of Paris where people who needed help could come and advertise uh, jobs, you know, they they wanted help uh, in their house or uh, with handiwork or whatever. And then other people would come and uh, and look at those ads and uh, and apply for the job. And and he came up with the idea of turning that into a newspaper to, it was more or less the first newspaper to distribute those job requests um, further afield. So you could say job applications started with newspapers, but it definitely does not stop there. But then you, there's a big jump forward from there to the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. Well, if you can imagine life before the Industrial Revolution, let's say that you and I set up a business making soap, right? We would probably make the soap out back in a little steel or whatever they make soap with, and then we would sell it from our shop front. We would have a counter and we would be there, and it would be called Robert and Mark's uh, soap store, right? But then when the Industrial Revolution came along, you had the the start of factories where we could produce our soap in extraordinary large quantities and distribute them uh, at least nationally, if not internationally. So then we're not there in person when the soap arrives at the the retail store to to sell the soap. We're not there to, to tell people why our soap is better than some other guy's soap. And that, in a way, was the birth of advertising, because the advertising agency played that role. So modern advertising as we know it today really kicked off as our economy advanced with the Industrial Revolution. But even these big companies aren't the ones really making the ads. And I guess a lot of, uh, a lot of advertising isn't created by the company itself, but by contractors who may go from company to company. Yeah, well, what, what happened was that um, initially, actually, it's funny that um, 
Um, so we, let's say late 19th, 20th century, a lot of advertising agencies were basically placing ads. So they would be in touch with the newspapers and they would be in touch with the brands and they would buy space in newspapers for the brands. And the brands themselves created their ads in-house because they figured probably rightly at the time that somebody who's, sell, somebody who's buying and selling advertising space knows nothing about their product. So that's what happened first of all. But then uh, people started to emerge who would say to the brands, look, I, you know, I'm a writer. Um, so they would say, look, you know, your ads are great, but they're, they're not that well written. They don't really explain your product in a way that the, the public can understand or that make, make it attractive. Let me, tell me what you want to say and let me kind of turn it around, make it a bit more interesting, a bit more appealing. And then, you know, and then you pay me for that work. And that started, I would say, in the late 19th, early, early 20th century. And then you, you know, and that was when, when advertising was very um, copy heavy. So it was mostly written uh, copy, extolling the virtues of, of a product. And then, you know, the guy who was the copywriter said, well, actually, this would be so much better if we had a great image to go along with it. So these people then started hiring artists to, to illustrate the the arguments of the of the brand. So then you had the kind of the first sort of creative boutiques uh, that were born, where you would have artists and writers working together with brands to produce something that was a more convincing argument uh, to get customers to buy your product. So, so that's where the the advertising agency was born. Advertising is born, and companies hiring these artists and writers gives two sides to this advertising game. So quite early on, in fact. You had these entities, these agencies that were on the one hand dealing with the clients, the brands, the people who wanted to sell product, and on the other hand dealing with the media, which at that time would have been uh, newspapers and magazines, and, and kind of creating a bridge between the two in a, in a creative and artistic way. So that's, that's, that development happened, I would say, yeah, late 19th, uh, early 20th century. So quite early on, brands were not making their own ads. They were allowing an outside entity, an advertising agency to, to make their ads. Um, and I guess there wasn't really a sudden change in, oh, now we have modern advertising. It's, I guess it was more an evolution. Yeah, it was totally an evolution, but there were sort of sudden points of what you would call inflection points, I suppose, where everything suddenly changed. So, for example, when radio came along in the 1920s, that was a huge leap. It was almost the equivalent of the internet in our era, or in my era, perhaps, um, because then you had a whole new medium, which required sound and required music and required a whole bunch of other people that you didn't need before. Um, and required a, a, a different approach. And with radio also came um, the idea that, um, I, think, I think the two things sort of happened together, but with radio came the idea that you could, you could aspire to a better life. So advertising became much more about selling people dreams. Um, in America, for example, around that same time when radio was born, the idea of higher purchase was born. That's to say you could buy a car or indeed a radio and pay for it install in installments. So you could effectively buy things you couldn't really afford. And that, that created the whole consumer society. Um, cigarette advertising. Um, cigarettes um, really became popular in the 1920s. Women were encouraged to smoke for the first time, which was unheard of before. So radio was, was another um, uh, vector for that kind of advertising. The soap opera was born 
in radio as well. Soap opera, so named because it was obviously a, a form of series or serial or entertainment, but the sponsor would be a soap brand. So that was born on radio as well. So that was an important, uh, an important leap. And then comes my favorite part. Anybody who knows me knows I love the 1950s, and we get something I had never heard of before called the Creative Revolution. And that's when certain agencies, uh, particularly um, DDB, Bill Birnbank's agency, started thinking about advertising in a more witty and intelligent way. Because advertising up until that point had been very repetitive. The idea was to kind of repeat, repeat, repeat the catchphrase or the slogan, kind of drill it into your head until you got the name of this brand. And, uh, and Bill Birnbeck and his acolytes felt that um, this was coming to an end, that the consumers were getting bored um, and perhaps even depressed by this form of advertising. And they decided to invent a more witty, chatty, kind of more intimate form of advertising. Um, in the early, I'm not sure, the late 50s or early 60s, early 60s, I think, was um, the classic example of that, where there's lots of, there's lots of copy to read. There's a picture of the tiny little Volkswagen Beetle. You may have seen this. It's a really famous ad. This is an era where nobody in America was buying small cars. They were buying huge things with fins and chrome and everything. And so you see a, a headline that says, think small. You see the tiny little car. And then there's a lot of very witty copy telling people why should, they should economize and buy this little but extremely reliable car. And, uh, and it was super groundbreaking at the time. And there are a whole bunch of these really funny VW ads that DDB did, which were really groundbreaking and which kind of led the way to what we now call the creative revolution. And it was all about a more artistic and witty form of, form of advertising. So modern advertising kind of, yes, it evolves, but there are kind of points where you see a jump. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, that's definitely one of them. Uh, in your book, you compare advertising by region kind of on a large scale, say like England uh, compared to France or Europe to America. And what were the differences in the way advertising was viewed in those regions, you would say? And uh, can we what can we look for as far as different marketing styles by region? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I guess well, in a way, um, you know, the U.S. and Madison Avenue was seen as the home of of advertising and a lot of people who worked in London in the 1970s which was the, the heyday of advertising in the UK were inspired by what I talked about before by the creative revolution and Bill Birnbeck so it's almost like it kind of starts in Madison Avenue and you kind of see a spread of this, of this these different ideas around the world. I gotta stop for a second so the whole world has looked to Madison Avenue as inspiration for its advertising. But that comes with a big caveat. But there are, you know, local variants. For example, um, France, advertising in France really began with artists um, like Toulouse-Lautrec, who used to uh, paint posters for um, the, the, the nightclubs, for the Moulin, for the Moulin Rouge. Um, and there was another guy called Jules Chéret who used to um, create posters for the Folie Bergère, which was the rival of the, of the Moulin Rouge. And, um, so they, these people were artists and the, the posters were less about selling an idea than about being artistic and, and you know, suggesting that you were going to enter into this artistic environment. And I think French advertising, even today, is a lot about that. It's a lot about craft. It's a lot about, you know, painstakingly crafting an ad so it looks beautiful. France is the home of luxury advertising. In a way, it's the home of luxury goods, but I think the two kind of go hand in hand. So France is the home of luxury advertising, 
But let's take a little tour of Europe. So what about Italy? Um, in Italy, another example, um, for a long time, uh, I think I'm right in saying this, but um, for a long time, there was only one advertising slot. I'm talking about TV now. It was like one advertising slot during the day. It was called the Carousello. And so you had, I can't remember how long it was. Like it was maybe an hour or two hours. But, um, but you had this basically definite slot where everybody did their advertising. So they wanted to stand out. And so a lot of them created, and I think it was a time when kids were still watching TV. So it's about maybe 7 p.m. or something. And so a lot of the agencies created um, advertising that was very kid-friendly. So a lot of it was cartoon characters. And uh, if you talk to Italian people who remember that era, a lot of them remember some of the characters um, from the Carousello and they have fond memories. Then we go to Germany, Cold War Germany. Germany, um, big industrial nation, uh, great builders of cars, for example, lots of great car advertising from, from Germany. Um, Australia, I even managed to sneak Australia into the book. Um, a very definite sense of humour, totally irreverent, quite often almost satirising advertising itself, which is sort of fun to watch. So, yeah, so I, th- I think that, you know, if you, if you think of Madison Avenue as being the birthplace of advertising, everybody adopted it, but they adopted it perhaps in their own way. And with all these countries and their nuanced advertising, I had no idea there's actually an advertising competition. One thing we could say is that award shows, for example, um, at Cannes every year, there's the Cannes Lion International Advertising Festival, where agencies compete to win prizes for their most creative work. And that's an international event. And there are many different juries. So there's a jury for digital, film, PR, design, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So the juries are international, but at the same time, because the juries are international, the dominating language is English. And so the dominating ideas are ideas that everybody can understand, which creates a sort of homogenization because obviously you don't want to make something too local and enter it in an international competition because they're just not going to get it. So you could say to an extent that the influence of Cannes has made advertising a little bit more uniform across regions. But there's always going to be local advertising that only a local culture can understand. Because what you're trying to do, essentially, with advertising, of course, is sell stuff. Hence the title of today's show. That's all you're trying to do, really. Um, And so if you want to sell stuff, you have to speak to people in a way that they understand. You know, on the one hand, you'll have a kind of global approach, which might be for a particular group of people or a particular tribe. For example, teenagers, sorry to say this, but teenagers tend to have similarities around the world in the way that they they react and and, and the things that they want. And that's why you can pretty much produce an international Nike ad or Nike, uh, if you prefer. Um, And and everybody's going to get it because they're all aspiring to more or less the same thing, you know. Can you talk about advertising's role in the dot-com bubble? Oh, yeah. Well, that was quite funny. Well, advertising will basically take whatever it's, it gets, you know, I mean, so um, a lot of these uh, small companies that, uh, that started up, and I, I was around then, actually. Uh, so in 1999, 2000, um, I was writing for a magazine called Campaign in London. They had a, a, a spin-off uh, sort of uh, supplement which, which talked about media, and obviously digital media was a, was a big part of that. And so you saw the agencies... Um, uh, getting clients that had loads and loads of money to spend because they were essentially startups. So what they would do is they would say, oh, I've got a great idea. We're going to sell. The, the classic was um, pets.com, right? 
So the guys, I can't, I can't remember the names of the guys, but the guys who set up pets.com, they're basically, their idea was basically, we're going to sell, you know, toys and I think food also and stuff for pets uh, online. And, uh, and we're going to be like the, the Amazon of, of pets kind of thing. And, um, <laughs> and so they then, you know, the banks obviously liked this idea and thought it would succeed and lent them a lot of money. So they had a lot of money to, to spend. And like a lot of them, a lot of dot-coms, they got through it pretty quickly. So I think it was, you know, a lot of these things were set up by young people who suddenly had millions of dollars to, to spend and didn't really know how to spend it. But, you know, they would say, well, let's, let's get, you know, the biggest advertising agency we could find and launch a huge advertising campaign. And then it's bound to work. But in fact, pets.com didn't work. Um, it had a very good um, advertising campaign, which involved a, a, a sock puppet, a sock puppy, a, a sort of a sock puppet, uh, which spoke and was very um, and was quite you know sarcastic and was was pretty funny actually. Um, uh, you know, everybody liked those ads, but despite the fact that the work was creative and funny and everybody liked the ads, Pets.com failed because pet owners didn't want to wait for their pets' food or playthings to arrive in the mail. They wanted to go to the local pet store and, uh, and buy it there. Uh, so it just didn't work. And there's a lot of examples of that. You have to remember that back in 99, um, delivery wasn't efficient, as efficient as it is today. The websites were slower and more difficult to understand. People were less sophisticated in their understanding of the digital world than they are today. So a lot of these things, while they sounded like a good idea, and let's not forget that even, even Amazon took years and years before it went into profit. Um, now it's obviously a humongously successful business, but when it started, it was not you know, a huge company and it took a long time uh, for it to make profit. So, I mean, it was one of the survivors, but a lot, a lot failed. And it was mainly because they had lots of money, but not much strategy and the public weren't really ready for these sites at the time. Today, we're bombarded with native ads or advertisements we don't see as advertisements would you put them in the same category as kind of the more quote-unquote old-fashioned ads or is that a different animal entirely no not really i mean we used to you know even in the early days of the, of the press there were always some um, advertorials which were basically ads in newspapers that kind of looked like articles and native advertising is is the same idea, really. Uh, honestly, as a journalist, I'm a bit wary of that because, um, you know, I was brought up um, in a world where if you worked for a newspaper or a magazine, you had the advertising department and you had the editorial department and they had nothing to do with each other. In reality, of course, they had everything to do with each other because without the advertising, the magazine wouldn't exist. The cover price did not pay my wages. The, the advertising paid my wages. But there was this kind of ethical idea that we wrote our articles without being um, bothered by the advertising department or bothered by the advertisers and they did their thing without necessarily having recourse to us. But that's not always the case. Um, although I do, I do remember when I worked on local newspapers writing a really um, bad review for a nightclub. So I started, um, I started working when I was 19 years old and I worked on a small local newspaper in the West of England. Um, and, uh, and they said, because I, I guess I was the youngest guy in the newsroom. And so they sent me out to do this review of the town's nightclubs. And there was one of them that I really hated because it was really dirty and a bit dangerous. 
And so um, I wrote about it and wrote a really negative, quite sarcastic review. And a couple of days later, my editor called me in and said, uh, Mark, uh, <laughs> I read your review and it's very funny and entertaining, but unfortunately this guy is uh, one of our biggest advertisers and now he really hates us. So um, don't do that again. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was in the 1990s. So, but to answer your question, I think native advertising, it definitely exists. I don't think it's anything new. I think it's something old that exists under a new name. And ethically, I have some problems with it because I think you're trying to fool the reader. You're trying to fool the reader into thinking this, this advertisement is part of the editorial of the, of the website or the newspaper or the podcast or whatever. And, I, and I, morally, I have a problem with that. I don't know if it's always been this way. I kind of have a limited view of history or scope of history with uh, I'm 16. But, yeah, sure. Um, it seems like with the Internet, say, for example, when you watch a YouTube video, it starts with advertisements, there's advertisements in the middle, finishes with advertisements, there's advertisements within the the video itself, and then there's like a banner underneath. I guess it hasn't always been that way. And Would you say there's a breaking point where it's just too much? Yeah, well, the difference today, of course, is that you can skip the ads, or usually you can, not, not in every circumstance, but you can skip the ads, and everybody skips them. So it proves that actually not many people like advertising, or not many people like bad advertising. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm convinced that if you, did a, if you did a great ad that was as good as something from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, people would watch it. It can be entertaining. So, yeah, exactly. If it's entertaining, and if it's got a narrative, and it's got characters that you like, I think people would watch it. But people skip 99.9% .9 of, of ads because they're just not good. Um, and it, it's kind of always been like that. I mean, advertising, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because advertising has always been the thing that surrounds us. It's on, the, on billboards, on the street, when we walk down the street, it's on TV, and even in the, in the movies, you know, you can't escape the, tr the trailers, which are kind of a, um, an ad, and even ads. So it's always been around us, and, I, and I, that's why I thought it was worth exploring as an industry, and that's why I'm fascinated by it. Uh, you know, and even before um, internet and before YouTube, um, etc., uh, when there was just radio and TV, of course, they were chock full of, of advertising. Um, you know, you would have uh, the advertising break uh, in the middle of your movie, and and it was kind of annoying. Although there was a period, I, I guess, I, I guess it depends on what kind of person you are. But in the eighties and nineties, it was when advertising agencies had a lot of money to spend on TV. And my dad, always, my dad always used to say that he thought that some of the TV commercials were actually better than some of the shows that were, <laughs> that were being broadcast on TV at the time. Because you had agencies like Saatchi and Saatchi that had a fortune to spend on advertising for British Airways and they were making kind of mini movies that looked like Spielberg movies that, that only lasted uh, 30 seconds or, or one minute. And, and so they'd grasped the art of making advertising so entertaining you actually wanted to watch it. So to answer your question, yes, advertising has always been all around us. Most of it has been annoying, but some of it jumps out because it's more creative or, or cleverer or wittier than, than the others. And, and that's the challenge when you work in advertising is to, is to make that advertising and not the stuff that nobody wants to watch. But what about advertising we don't know we're watching? We talked about native ads, but with the rise of artificial intelligence, we get the most dangerous form of advertising recommendation advertising. And for that, I go to a clip from Planet Money. In the world of recommendation algorithms, there's this team of researchers who've been studying the code and the systems and their effects on us to find out if 
in addition to guiding us to our preferences, these programs can actually change our preferences. My name is Jingjing Zhang, and my work I look at how online recommendations affect our decision making. And to figure out if recommendation systems are changing us, Jingjing and her team created a series of experiments using college students, basically fiddling with recommendations and seeing how those recommendations affected the students' behavior. And in one of those experiments, they were trying to gauge just how much of an effect these algorithms have on us, how powerful the power of robot suggestion is. So they chose something consumable, but perfectly subjective, music. What we did is that we took uh, the top 100 songs from this annual billboard list, and then we provide different recommendations for these songs. The recommendations, which were on a five-star system, were manipulated, tweaked up or down. But the researchers told the students that the ratings were perfectly tailored to them. The students had to listen to the whole song and then say if they wanted to buy it, and if so, how much they would pay. And like Jingjing and her team are pretty sure that forcing students to actually listen to these songs would negate the impact of the recommendations. The students would form their own opinions and ignore the star ratings. You're not going to let an algorithm boss you around, right? What we found is that on average, for each one star manipulation, that's going to increase the willingness to pay per price by 7% to 17%. The students offered significantly more money for higher rated songs even when those ratings were totally manipulated. Jingjing tested this and retested this, and the results were clear. When a machine tells us that we're going to like something, we trust the machine more than ourselves. So the question is, how many opinions are really our opinions, and how many are created for us? I'll just leave it at that. I congratulate you on listening this far, and obviously by this point, you can tell I have opinions on advertising where it crosses the line, and advertising has its place, but I think it would be stooping pretty low for a project like this one on the history of things to be funded by advertisements. And that's why the history of is completely funded by producers. That was smooth. I usually have a little spiel that I run at the end of each episode about how you can donate, but this one is different. I'm just going to say that if The History Of is a free podcast to listen to, that means it's worthless. That's how the model works. If you really believe The History Of is worth something to you, send that value back in whatever amount feels comfortable and appropriate for you. There is no Patreon. There is no exclusive content. Nothing will be held back from any listener as long as you trust the value for value agreement. I'm Robert Lakatosh. Thanks so much for listening and have a blessed day.